it's been an it's it's been an adventure being married to 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 me. And one of the things that I committed to do when we got married was that to, to always celebrate our anniversary. That on, on that occasion, I want to be able to get away. And you know why that is? How, how many of the rest of you have, are, are big on celebrating your anniversary? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Shame on the rest of you. You know the reason I, I have committed for us to do that? Is I want to be reminded of why we committed our lives in marriage to each other all that long ago. Now, what does that possibly have to do with, with our subject this evening? Is when we come to talking about the church, it depends on where you've been and what you've done, what your story read light in terms of when you came to faith in Christ, what your family heritage was in terms of its church or religious affiliation, and what all you've been engaged in over the course of your lifetime. So when we come to talk about, and we use the word church, um, we may all agree on a formal definition, but in our minds we may not be thinking exactly the same thing about what church means. I, I, uh, I made a commitment, I think as an adolescent, probably 14 years old, to to. to to attempt to read the Bible through once every year. And so I committed to doing that way back then. And, and probably about, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago, I decided that each new year I read it through, I wanted to read a different translation. You know, I cut my teeth like most of you did on what? King James, right, right. And, and what edition of the King James? For me, it was a Schofield reference Bible. Any of the rest of you? I mean, that's, that's what yeah, I grew up with. And so I'd, I'd read that and, you know, and so, you know, began reading and I read the New American Standard and then I read the uh, uh, New International Version. And I've probably been through, I'm thinking probably 10 different translations. And, um, and the one that I'm currently working through is the, um, I think it's called the New English Bible. Um, in, in some of my research, when I'm looking for uh, a, perhaps a, a, a more refined translation of a given passage for purposes of preaching. And I'll go through, and, and if you're an internet person and, and you're familiar with BibleGateway.com, you can go on there, and, and there have to be at least 50 English translations of the Bible. At least. Now, some of them aren't worth looking at. Let me just tell you, they are just not worth... I've looked at them, so take my word. They're just not worth... So this one, I don't even remember what I was preaching on, but a particular passage, I felt like it, it handled the New Testament language, uh, the Greek, better than what I had read. And for communication purposes, that, that's what you want. You want to be clear to, to the nature and the content of the Scripture. And so this particular translation, I said, well, I like how it does it. So that became my commitment. Well, I'm going to read through that one this year. Um... I'm, I'm sort of okay with it, but, but one of the problems I have with in the New Testament, the, the, the editors, uh, I'm not sure I want to ascribe to them being translators, the editors chose, choose not to translate the word ecclesia as church, but as assembly. And so anytime you're reading in Paul, when he's talking about the church, they will use the word assembly. Now, in some context, like right now, you are, what, the church assembled. When this service is over with, then you're the, you're the church scattered. But to translate every opportunity as assembled 
assembly, I'm, I'm not real comfortable with that. So, so one of the things that I think is important for you in this sort of assessment, is it safe to say you're in an assessment period as a church? Another assessment, I, I was talking to this morning as I'm trying to, to meet people so that I, I don't remember your names the next time I see you, but Bruce was, was, was back here in, in, in the, one of the wings before the service and was talking to him and asked him how long he'd been here. He said, I've been here since 1975, and I'm thinking, okay, well, that's a, that's a pretty good length of time. And uh, what do you, he says, I think I've served on every committee and thing the church has ever had except the pastor search committee. And I'm not looking for that job. <laughs> I said, yeah, there's a fine line between hero and goat when you're on that thing. And he laughed and smiled and was thankful that he's not on that. Um, so, so in this sort of assessment period that you have as a church and, and for the people that you have elected to serve as, you know, looking for a, an interim and then looking for a pastor... Um, they have a huge challenge. And the challenge being is that, I mean, you look at yourselves as a church. You look at what you value. And then you go fishing for somebody to provide leadership for you with your values in the direction you think that God would have you to go. But unless you are in agreement on what the church is and what the church is supposed to be about, then, then you're going to be hamstrung, if it's okay to say that, in terms of finding someone who can provide that leadership. And so this evening, what I want us to do, and I've been simply entitled this Rediscovery because my wife and I, you know, we get away to try to rediscover why we got married because I know there have been a lot of times since then she's going, I don't know why I did this. Um, Does the Lord have a sense of humor or what? I mean, I'm just glad there's not a shock associated with that sound there um, with my wife on the trigger. Um, we do that intentionally. And so that's what I want this to be, to go back and look at a very familiar passage to help you in, in coming to some consensus of thought and of heart in terms of your concept of what the church is supposed to be based on the words of Jesus. So let's look at this very, very, very familiar passage in Matthew chapter 16. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah. But still others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Would you agree that there's no better place to start in rediscovering what the church is supposed to be about than that passage right there. 
I mean, you can go to denominational documents. You can go to your constitution and bylaws. You can go to what, you know, you can do a survey and ask people's opinions. But I don't think you're going to find a better place to start the conversation than to go back where it was originally pronounced. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the history of the development of the church in the first century, but um, as the church was birthed in the book of Acts, see, Jesus is he's talking about a precursor here before it actually takes place. It, it, was, it was built largely upon the concept of the synagogue because as the Jewish people had been dispersed among the nations um, because of the various reasons, they gathered in little clusters called synagogues as a place to, to celebrate their faith. And so when the New Testament church was born, then those first believers were what? They were, they were Jewish. And so they took their Jewish concept of that gathering um, into the New Testament. And, um, and, you know, we don't know that Jesus is playing on that. We just know that's what they did in trying to take what Jesus said and put it into application. So we go to the words of Jesus, and so it's, I want you to take your outlines, if you have those left over from this morning, let's fill in some blanks. As we sort of unwrap this passage right here, all right, first off, th there needs to be a rediscovery of the foundation, a rediscovery of the foundation. Do, do we have any, uh, any builders here tonight? You, you, as a profession, you were a builder, you were an architect? Wow. I'll know not to call on you to ask to come help build something. That's a, some of us along the way have had to do multiple things. One of the things you learn in building, the most, the most important thing you do in putting up any structure is do what? Lay a firm foundation. Because the building, the structure that goes on top of it is never going to be any better than the foundation that it sits on. The same thing is true with what Jesus intended for the church. That's one of the reasons I think that the whole notion of church historically has, has sort of wandered from its purpose, and that's because the foundation was not laid where it should have been laid. And so rediscovering what the foundation of the church has is. As to what it is not, um, because one of the things that I, 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 major, I minored in, in just general history in college, I've sort of majored in church history over the course of my ministry in life, and it's, it's just amazed me... Um, at the things that people have believed and embraced and pronounced and promoted and repeated when it comes to their interpretation or their translation of this specific passage here. And, and I think most of you would agree, so I'm, I'm not assuming you don't agree with this. I'm just making sure we're on the same page of the playbook as we go forward. As to what it is not. Now, somewhere in here I have a video clip, and hopefully the sound is the sound on for that clip. Okay, okay, all right. Well, I don't want you to miss this because this is one of those stellar spiritual moments that you will remember if you don't remember anything else I do because it will make a profound point. I just don't remember where I put it in the presentation, but it's somewhere right in this neighborhood. That shows it's 64. I'm still I'm not as sharp as I ever thought I was. Okay, all right, we're good. All right. As to what the church is not, watch this. Very famous clip. Buddy? Yeah, sure, kid. There you go. And your wallet. Nick, give him your wallet. What for? He's got a knife. <laughs> That's not a knife. 
has a knife. <laughs> See, you did your you you did, you responded appropriately. Now, I didn't go back and look at what year this came out, but it's been a long time ago. I think this came out in the 80s. Would that be correct? You know, that's already 30 years ago. Um, even when I'm putting this together and I go back and I watch it, I, I laugh every time because it's just, it's one of those funny moments. I thought about that in this context because there's so many things that have been ascribed to being the foundation of the source of what the church is that I thought of Mick Dundee who says, well, you know, that's not the church. This is the church. What it is not. First, the church upon which Jesus built is not Peter. Now, I know you've had enough uh, college professors from, from uh, uh, the, the Charleston Southern that you've had your Greek lesson on this, I'm pretty sure of that, that there's, there's, there's more than one word that's sort of translated as, as rock. Now, you and I both know there's a well-known, rather large, old religious establishment who lays claim that Peter was the rock upon which Jesus built the church. Are we on the same page? I don't, I don't want to give it away, so I'm trying to be politically correct here. I know that's probably important to you all. Um, but, but he says, upon, on, upon this, this rock, this Petra or Petras, I'm going to build my church. The truth of the matter is that Jesus never intended, nor did he ever succeed in doing, in building the called out ones on this man. If anybody knows the story of Peter, I have affectionately over my ministry given him the nickname of Rocky. Um, could be because my younger brother is Rocky and very strong-willed and hard-headed. And, and I felt like Peter was always that. That's not what you, Because the, the two different words here, one means a stone, a pebble, and the other means a massive rock, a foundation stone. When Jesus said, upon this rock, he didn't use the word for little stone. He used the word for massive structure. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Well, it is not upon Peter. As a, as a do, do, it's always risky. Do we have any history teachers here? You taught history and, okay, that means I can say anything and you believe it, all right? Um, for, for that other group out there that claims that, you know, Peter was the foundation, there's no historical evidence to support that fact. As a matter of fact, if we know Constantine, who, who became the emperor um, of the Roman Empire in the 4th in the century, um, because up until Constantine came, came to power, Christianity was illegal. And so for 300 years, you could not have had a head... <laughs> of an ecclesiastical body located in Rome because nobody would have been alive to carry it on. It wasn't until the 5th century when you actually had somebody to ascend to that position and said, okay, I am the head of the universal church. Of course, at that time too, they also had, I don't know if you know this, they actually had three heads. There was a <clears throat> pope in Spain, and there was in Rome, and then there's one in Constantinople. Now we know it as Istanbul. So they couldn't even agree as to which head was the right head. So the first thing to establish is what the church is not. It is not Peter. And the second thing it is not is not even profession. And this is one of those things that well-intentioned Satan, you may be one of those who have said over time, I know the church wasn't founded on Peter. When Jesus asked this question, 
Um, I, I find it interesting. He's asking his disciples, if you see, this is Matthew chapter 16. So that tells you because we're coming into the final stage of Jesus' ministry before his arrest and, and execution. So we're very late in the ministry of Jesus when he's talking with his disciples who have been following him and witnessing what he's been doing and participating. He has sent them out. They've gone out with his power and his authority, and they come back with that wow moment. It says, you're not going to believe what happened, Jesus. Yeah, can you imagine saying that, Jesus? You, you can't believe what happened. We went out, and even the demons were subject to us. And Jesus said, don't make such a big deal out of that. Make a big deal out of the fact that your names are written in, in heaven. They come back, and, and he's in his teaching moment. And so he's got his disciples together. And, and the first question is, what is the scuttlebutt? What, what are you hearing the, the talk on the street about who people think that I actually am? Now, you, you'll have to help me out here because uh, they were blessed to live in a time before there was an internet, okay? Which meant they lived in a time before there was social media. If we were to contemporize this question with Jesus and his disciples, don't you think the question is... What's going on on Facebook about me? <laughs> What's being posted about me on social media? And, and that's where they said, well, you know, it's all over the map, Jesus. One thinks you're Elijah, one thinks you're Moses, one thinks you're, you know, this one and that one and this one and that one. They can't agree on who they think you are. They just don't believe you are who you claim you are. And he says, okay, it's one thing for you to repeat what you've heard others saying about me. So who do you say that I am? And Peter, whose M.O. was to never wait to be the second one to speak about anything. He is not shy. He is not bashful. At least in this context. I got this one, Jesus. You are the Christ. We know that. Christos is the same as Messias. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew for the anointed one. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And because Jesus does one of these, you're right on the mark. This wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood. You didn't deduce this. This wasn't a collaborative effort of talking with your friends or your family about who I am. This was by revelation. And up on this rock, I'll build my church. There have been a, a lot, and, and I know in my lifetime, which means in your lifetime too. Um, there are some that said, no, we reject Peter as the foundation of the church. But it's Peter's profession that is the foundation of the church. It's the profession or the confession that Jesus is the Christ that is the foundation of the church. And I would just completely reject that. Some of you, um, I know it was back in the 70s. Now, I know that there are some who say, if you can remember the 70s, you weren't there. I, that, that's not true. I, I remember the 70s. I was there. I, you know, I was doing then sort of what I'm doing now. I was involved in, in the Lord's work and kingdom work. And so I, I didn't go out and you know, travel on the dark side. So I remember those days. Well, in those days, of course, it was hyper. Some of you may remember this. This was hyper period about the second coming of Jesus. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, 
Homer, was it Homer Lindsay? Yeah, the late great planet Earth came out during that time. A whole spate of movies came out about the second kingdom of Christ. In, in 1977, the, the, the planets were all supposed to line up on the same side of the solar system, and people were afraid that it was going to tip things over, and that was going to, you know, all that hype that went on back then. That in, in, in the midst of all that, there were bumper stickers that were produced. This was like where the bumper stickers really got their start. And there was a very popular one that I saw on a lot of church people's cars that said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Do you remember that? I just want to know what my believing it has to do with whether it's true or not. If God said it, you know what? That settles it, whether anybody believes it or not. So the church is not founded on the person of Peter, nor is the church founded on the profession of Peter. It's founded on, I thought this was up there. Oh, what it is. Can't give it away yet. Okay. We know what it is not. <laughs> this is the reason I do an outline, so I know where I'm going. Um, the rediscovery of the foundation as to what it is not. As to what it is. It is the truth about Jesus without respect to who believes it or confesses it. This is... This is one of those, I'm grateful now of, of personal life transitions and growth things that I've come to. It used to be really important for other people to agree with my opinion about things. Some of you may feel the same way. Uh, I, I think it's probably more true of men in general than women. Sorry, guys, but I, I think that's probably, would you women agree with that? It's more important for your husbands to be right than for you to be right? Say yes, and we're good. Okay. In my, my spiritual conversations with people, um, you know, I've talked to people with church backgrounds. I've talked to people with no church backgrounds. I have an older brother that professes to be an atheist right now. I've worked with agnostics. I've worked with Muslims. I've worked with people across the board. And, and one of the things that I've come to terms with in trying to provide a clear communication of the gospel for anyone and certainly those that aren't given to it because they weren't raised in the environment I was raised in. They weren't raised with the benefit of being a part of a, of a, of a Christian family or, or a good church. They didn't have all those benefits. Their worldview has been shaped by the world as they know it. And, and a lot of times what they see in church people and churches is, is not a real good testimony. Okay? Um, for instance, I, we, my wife is, was a part of this, planting a church in Maryland in 1993. Um, you know what was going on in the early 90s that presented a challenge for me? My first name is James. Okay, I have never been Jim in my life unless it's G-E-M, and I'm okay with that. It might be G-Y-M under certain smelly conditions, but I've never been J-I-M. So I'm, I'm a... I'm a a foreigner in Maryland. I'm from Texas. I'm in Maryland. I'm planting this church. And people don't know who I am or what this whole thing is about. We have just come through the Jimmy Swaggart thing and the Jim Baker thing. And here comes another Jim. And the Jim Jones thing. And here comes just another Jim. They're wondering if I'm passing out Kool-Aid or handling snakes or doing any of those kind of things. What people have seen and experienced by people who profess to be what? Followers of Jesus Christ doesn't give them a whole lot of sound fodder to work with in trying to process what's true and not true. And my trying to convince them of the truth based on some reasoned argument falls on deaf ears because I'm just simply one more voice in a sea of voices in their life. 
And what I had to make peace with saying to people when it comes to the, the, to the truths that you and I hold to, we believe that Jesus was God in the flesh, <laughs> born of a virgin, lived a sinful life, died a substitutionary atonement for our sins, came back to life after three days, and ascended to be with the Father to justify us before Him. We agree with all those things. But for the person that, that hasn't embraced that or hasn't ever been exposed to that, I had to make peace with the fact that what I believe about anything does not make it true. And for me to confess that to an agnostic or for me to confess that to an atheist, say, listen, I believe these things absolutely, but my belief doesn't confirm them or make them true. You have to decide the truth of those things for yourself. And only by the Spirit of God are they going to come to that persuasion, not by my sound reasoning or argument. Most of the time, people are going to be looking for an authentic life that's a reflection of Jesus Christ to be the credible voice of witness to them that they might come to know Him. So the church is not Peter. The church is the fact of who Jesus It's built on the truth of who Jesus is. My belief in it does not establish it any more than my disbelief in it unestablishes it. Okay, number two is there needs to be a rediscovery of authority. And, and this is one of those sort of perplexing things for me. Jesus said, okay, upon this rock I'll be in my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Whatever you bind will be bound. Whatever you loose will have been loosed. I don't know about you, but in, in my, my lifetime of watching the work of God's kingdom known as the church in a corrupt and corrupting world and environment, I've not been a witness to a whole lot of spiritual power in that, in that time and place. I've seen a lot of spiritual weakness in that time and place. We, we had, I was uh, pastoring a, a small country church where I went while we were in seminary. Our first son, our, our first child was born there. And I remember it was a Sunday evening service. And um, I'm down preaching my heart out. And this man comes wandering into the, into the worship center. And, I, you know, I'm just I'm sort of like doing when I have a, a messed up sound system. I'm just trying to carry on. And this guy just walks straight down the aisle and stops right here and just stares up at me. And I finally just stopped to acknowledge his presence. And I said, can I help you? He said, what's going on? <laughs> I, I came down from the, from the port and I began to talk to that man. I shared the gospel with him. We got down on our knees and we prayed. I gave him a Bible and he left. I had church members thought that I had staged the whole event. He was, he was some stranger that I think was a little high on something. But after that, you know why I felt? I felt powerless. Because here was somebody who walked into the lion's den <laughs> where people are gathered in the name and the authority of the power of Jesus Christ. And the best I could do was talk to him, pray with him, give him a Bible, and send him on his way. One of the things the church needs to rediscover is its authority. Based on the original strategy. Based on the original strategy. Jesus used these words. He said, upon this rock, the truth, I will build my church, 
And the gates of, we all learned it from the King James as the gates of hell, but the Greek word there is not the fiery pit. It's the place of the departed dead. I don't, do you all know that distinction? You've probably been taught that. Okay. See, I'm trying to give you credit for uh, classes you've already taken. Um, th- this is not supposed to be rudimentary theology. I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. One of the the sad sort of trends that I think has happened historically is the church, and right now this is a really good time to talk about this, the the fact that we are engaged in a cultural war. That the world that we know it in our beloved United States doesn't really care for our brand of worshiping God. (laughs) They they made that evidence by the decisions that have been made and the places that that we've been excluded from. And so there's been this sort of this um, fortress mentality that Christians have embraced over time so that when we get together, we're in, in a holy huddle in a place of, of sacred safety away from the onslaught of the evils of the society and the world around us. And we strike a what? A defensive posture. And then it becomes us inside and those outside. And, and it's what some writers, you know, in the last 25 or 30 years has called the, and not just the fortress mentality, but the stained glass mentality, that this becomes, that, that our gathering becomes a refuge from all that out there. But when you, when you take apart the language of Jesus when he's talking about the church, he turns it upside down. You see, when he talks about the gates of hell not prevailing against, against the authority of the church, the picture is not one of the gates of Hades outside of the doors of our gathering places, pounding on the doors and Jesus promising, listen, if you're the real church, your doors will hold up against the pounding of the enemy of darkness, of Hades, and if you want to put hell in there, say, oh, that's fine. That's not the language that Jesus uses here. Let me give you an example. This is, before he became our president, he was a general. And you know that he didn't win every battle he was engaged in. (laughs) He actually lost a few. He said, teaching his, his soldiers, this was what he said. He said, make them believe that offensive operations oftentimes is the surest and the only means of defense. The words that Jesus used in this passage, he said, it's not the gates of Hades that are on the offensive and the church that is on the defensive. He said, the church that I'm building should be the one that is on the offensive and the gates of Hades ought to be on the defensive. The gates of Hades cannot stand against the church of God that is marching in the power of God under the authority of God and the Holy Spirit to stand up against it. And so there should never be a time or a place where believers are cowering in fear for their lives. They ought to be courageous and strong under the what? The authority of Jesus Christ to be what? Not just the defenders of the faith, but the promoters of the faith. That as we go out in the power of Jesus Christ to make a difference, guess what? We will make a difference. Because it is in the promise of Christ that when we take the offensive, then, then the gates of Hades cannot resist that offensive. When, um, I wouldn't plan on uh, sharing this, but it simply it works. When, you know, I, I'm from Texas. You and I, you know, South Carolina is a part of the Bible Belt. You know, which part of the Bible Belt is the buckle is for, you know, you to debate. Texas is a part of the Bible Belt, all across the, the Gulf Coast states. So, so you and I have been, we, we've grown up in a culture that have acknowledged and affirmed and believed and supported most of our spiritual values because most of the people in leadership shared those values. They were people of, uh, of faith. When the Lord sent us 
and I'm going to say I was either sentenced uh, to go to Maryland. wasn't in my plan. But anyway, we went to Maryland. Maryland's not in the Bible Belt. I, I hope you all know that. Maryland is not in the Bible Belt. Now, do not call them Yankees, because if you ever go there, they will remind you that they are south of the Mason-Dixon line. Now, it separates Maryland from Pennsylvania, so, I mean, they're not far from that, but don't ever accuse them of being Yankees. So we go there, and it's not the Bible Belt. And, um, and, and before we went there, I interviewed everybody I could. I said, have you ever been to Maryland? You know what Maryland's like? You know, help me out here. I'm trying to discern what God's will is. And, uh, and they would say, you know, I've never met anybody that's going there. Everybody I met was leaving there. Um. Baltimore City, where we ended up in the southern part of Baltimore City, was Billy Graham, when he went there in 1963 to do a crusade, called it the preacher's graveyard. Because a lot of men had gone there to do kingdom work, and they had died trying. It was considered a hard mission field. We went there in 1993 into a church not unlike this one, that was considered one of the strongest churches in the state convention. I went in there with a passion and a vision and a purpose, and uh, immediately God began to bless the work. We spent three years there tormenting those people, and we, and we exhausted the facilities. We had to go to two services, and, and there, just, there, there wasn't room to, to meet. And after three years, it's when the Lord convinced me that it was time to, to plant a church where I didn't have to apologize for doing God's will or ask permission to do it. Um, and, and so we went out without financial support. We were tied to the convention. We had a sponsoring church, but no money. And the Lord just blessed. And you know what I discovered? It was not a preacher's graveyard. It was a preacher's garden. Because I discovered those people that needed Jesus were just waiting for somebody who came alongside of them that didn't try to look like a super saint who says, listen, you're flesh and blood, I'm flesh and blood. Let me tell you about a Jesus who was flesh and blood too. And they were receptive to the gospel. I discovered that the, the church on the offensive could assault the gates of Hades and the gates of Hades could not stand up against the church. My, my question for you is, is, that's what, is that what you want for this church? Do you want this church to be on the defensive or the offensive? That's the question you're having to answer right now. Based on the original strategy. And then based on keeping first things first. I, I, I try to, to, I'm a systems guy. I like putting, I like an ordered universe, <laughs> even though it was, I hate to admit, it was a woman who said a, a place for everything and everything in its place. Um, I, I'm that guy. I, I like this. So, so I look at all of this information about the birth of the church and what Jesus did, and then I look at how we have managed that truth and what we have come to in our generation with, with what the church looks like and how it functions. And, and I realize that, that there are a lot of things that have gone into as a, as a matter of function in doing church as we do that have no real basis in Scripture, but they become necessary evils. And um, so I've distilled really into, there can be more than these, but these are the, the, the three things that um, sort of cover everything that we do in the name of being church and doing church. And, and, and so it's, it's a question of which thing needs to be first. There is our method of doing church. Our method of doing church. How we do what we do. Now, um, parenting 101. When, when you're raising children, or now if you're raising grandchildren, and, and you give that little 
person, a directive, and they ask the question, why do I have to do that? Parenting 101, the simple answer is, because I said so. You all went to that class? Because I said so. That totally satisfied me when I was a kid. I was happy with that answer, not on your life. I wanted more than that. How we go about, when we take the words of Jesus, who said, this is, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to build my church upon this. And it's going to be on the offensive. And the gates of Hades can't stand against it. And I'm going to give you authority that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you lo- will be loosed in heaven. And then he gets crucified. And then he comes back to life. And then he ascends to heaven. He tells his disciples to remain in Jerusalem until the Spirit descends on them. And we know what happens. The day of Pentecost comes. They spent time in prayer. The day of Pentecost comes. The Spirit descends. Those believers were filled with the Holy Spirit. They preached the gospel. And thousands responded. And in Acts chapter 2, we have the first testimony of the thing that Jesus said he was going to do taking shape after Pentecost. As that group of believers gathered together, <laughs> and who's, who's sort of in charge? Well, Peter's he, he's, he's up there. He's not the pastor of the church, and I'm not sure how that didn't happen, but he wasn't the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He, he was like his wingman. He was used to, to preach the message in Pentecost. Um, but from that moment, that group of believers had to look around and say, okay, we've got the marching orders from Jesus, so how do we do what he told us to do? And every generation of believers since then has been answering that question, how do we do what Jesus said to do? Now, I happen to be a lifelong Baptist. I, I think if you really know the Scripture, you'll be a Baptist too, but that's simply my opinion. Would you all agree? Help me out here. We don't have any Methodists in disguise in here, do we? Church Christ? Somewhere along the way, somebody has said, this is what we think the church ought to look like here. This is how we think we ought to do the things that we do. And so, practice, in, in, uh, practice for practical purpose over time simply becomes a tradition. You do it because that's the way it's always been done. So, so method explains a lot of what we do. We're down here on Sunday evening, but somewhere, someone, and, and we don't have time to go into this history. But how we do what we do is, is a component of the question about the purpose of the church. And, and this happens to be the one where you get in the most contentious debates about the kingdom of God as to how, how it, it's expressed. Even though it's not dictated in Scripture, we certainly have our personal preferences. Don't you agree? B, motive, why we do what we do. How we do what we do, but then why? Why do we do what we do in addition to the how? Um, And if we were to do a survey, if we were to do a survey here this evening, say, okay, so, so why does this church do X? And why does this church do Y? And why does this church do Z? And if it was a test to be taken anonymously without collaboration, and, you know, I don't know we've got 80 people here, 75 people here this evening, uh, we, we might get 
more than a few different responses. Would you agree, Mark? Yeah, 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 you give it. Why we do what we do. And that ought to tell us something. Because if Jesus is the one that's founded the church and we're about his business, then you'd think we would be in agreement on the why we're doing the things that we're doing. And then the last of these is the message, what we do. Is what we do. So the question comes for you in, in your assessment process as a church is looking at the totality of who you are and what you do in the name of being church and, and doing church. Is there agreement on a biblical foundation for all of these? Now, I'm pretty sure that, that there would be consensus on the message. I think if somebody proposed, this is what the New Testament says the message of the church is, I think everybody would go, yep, there it is, chapter and verse. And if you were to go to the why and you were honest, I think there would be pretty good consensus there. Well, the, re- the reason why is because we just read it. It's here, chapter and verse. Jesus said, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. The first century church did this, don't do this. Did this you know, so. So, so the what and the why were in agreement on. But how we do, why we do, what we do, is where the church historically has had to find a voice in each generation that's a voice that works in that generation. And that's where churches reach difficulties in their life cycles. It's, um, you know, I can think of some good examples. Um, hmm, what would be a good example? Have any, I'm, I'm looking around because we're, this is a seasoned group. Is that safe to say? This is a seasoned group. We don't use the word O word around here. It's not old. Nobody's old. We're, we're seasoned. We're well-traveled. We're high mileage. We're in there. Knowing that, that, that in this season of the year in Charleston, this is a place to be cool, calm, and dry, right? I, I don't think so. Hot and humid. That's here. So how many of you, and some of you may still, God bless you, but how many of you perhaps grew up in a home that didn't have air conditioning? How many of you like that? What happened? Oh, you, you like not having air conditioning? Okay. But do you know better now? Do you like it? Air conditioning? Okay, thank you. <laughs> That's right. And, 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 and nobody thinks that Miss Tommy has an opinion, right? You see, there, there was a time and day. Well, let me, <laughs> let me take a little bit more fun one here. This is one that some of us can relate to. Okay. Um, it may be true in the city, but how many of you actually grew up in, in a rural area in, in, the, in the country? Okay. How, how many of you grew up with an outhouse? <laughs> a grandma's house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, 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 grew up, I grew up with, with an outhouse. My wife can testify in her family this was true. True in a lot of families. When they first started putting toilets in the house... You know anybody that objected to that notion? Going to the bathroom in the house? And of course it came along when, when you know, grilling outdoors became popular that somebody made a big joke about the fact, yeah, we've come to that day when we cook outside and go to the bathroom inside. It's, you know, what's this world? <laughs> we adjusted, didn't we? We adjusted. 
I like air conditioning. I don't perspire, people. You need to know this. I sweat. I like air conditioning. You, you see, in, in every other area of our life, we've been able to adapt to the changes that have come along. Um, in 1975, 1975, we had a, a professor in our college, Dr. McLaren, who went on record and said, one of these days, every home in America will have a computer in it. You know what I thought? You are out of your ever-loving mind. Guess what? <laughs> it's pretty true. Who would have thought? Or who would have thought, I mean, how many of you have cell phones? Come on, confess, own up, yeah, yeah, yeah. How many of you swore you would never have one? Don't, no, don't, that's okay. Don't, don't, don't confess that. I, I, I say all that to give us perspective because in, in this deliberation that you're doing as a church going forward and looking for leadership to take you, you know, forward and, and while we wait on Jesus to come back, is, is, that's a part of the question and the challenge is, is, is how to be the church that God would have you to be in 2018, not 2068. Because it's a different world that we live in now than we lived in back then. And, and the question is, are we willing to, to you know, look for the, the Lord's leading? I've been to Turkey. I, I was privileged to go at the invitation of some Muslim friends in, in Maryland to go as part of a cultural exchange and went over and we were their guests and got to fly all over the country. And, and I got to go to Cappadocia, the place where the underground city is called, carved in the limestone. And, and there's a place in there carved into the stone where the Christians lived underground because they were hunted. And there are murals that are painted on the walls that are, that are a thousand years old. They simply did what they had to do in that time and that place in order to have a future. They're no longer there. The caves are still there. And so that's a part of the challenge and the journey that you're on, that I am absolutely convinced that the words of Jesus to the church back then is based on this principle right here. <laughs> uh, uh, was it Gary Larson? Is that his name? The, the cartoonist? Everybody's favorite cartoonist. Um, Somebody sitting on the edge of their bed. This doesn't represent anybody in this room, but he has this, this sign on the wall that says, First pants, then your shoes. For you as a church, if you're putting those three things in order that they ought to be, what should be first and what should be last? Should the message be first or the method be first? Should the motive be first or the message be first? That's a part of the deliberation. To be the church that you are to be the church that Christ has redeemed you to be and called you to be and blessed you to be. And the opportunity you have before you to extend that into the next generation as you move forward in, in your journey. Anybody got any questions or comments? You've been awfully quiet. That scares me to death. That's, <laughs> you're, I know you're listening. I've sort of picked up on it. Any questions or comments? You want me to pray so we can leave? You'll leave whether I pray or not? All right, let me, let me lead us in prayer. Well, Father, when Paul talks about the mystery of the church, he's talking about the fact that your grace has extended beyond the boundaries of culture and life and race and gender. 
and all those things and, and has reached out and touched people from every area of life and introduced them to, to grace in a living relationship of faith in Jesus Christ. And, and that you were able to make us one, sharing the foundation of the truth of Jesus Christ. And that the Highland Park Baptist Church is, is no different than that. People from different backgrounds and different lifestyles and different storylines, that you've brought them here and you've placed them here 60 years ago. Together to be salt and to be light and to make Christ known, to be on the offensive of taking Christ to those that need Him. And so, Father, I just join with them in this moment of prayer saying, Father, help us rediscover all that you intended for the church to be in their journey right now. And help them to find the leadership of the Spirit in, in making the challenging decisions, in celebrating the victories of yesterday, and having hope for tomorrow. I thank you for their leadership. I ask that you use them and bless them and give them discernment in this journey and this process. And thank you for the privilege of the time that we spent together this evening. It's in Jesus' name we pray and for his sake. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.